Welcome to 35 West. I'm Ryan Berg, director of the Americas program at CSIS and host of the 35 West podcast. With how professional the Mexican but government are we ready? I don't reform think. trends in Argentina. Right. And that's what happened. Role at all in the NEFTA negotiation. Semiconductors. Materials used to control the flow of electricity through a circuit in precise patterns are the lifeblood of the modern digital economy. However, the global semiconductor industry remains highly concentrated, with Taiwan alone producing the vast majority of the most advanced semiconductors, a phenomenon which has already given rise to major economic disruptions. There is a clear need to develop supply chain resiliency in the semiconductor industry a trend which carries significant potential for Latin American countries, which could see their burgeoning chip manufacturing and research industries catalyzed by new investments. This week, we are joined by Jackie Stern, Corporate Vice President for Global Supply Chain Operations with the Intel Corporation. Jackie is a world-renowned expert on semiconductor supply chains, having been at the forefront of developing Intel's strategy to build resiliency and respond to global shocks to the industry. In this episode, we will examine the state of semiconductor research and manufacturing in Latin America and discuss policy options for the United States and the region to advance these trends. Thank you for joining us today on the podcast, Jackie. Thank you for having me on the pod today, Ryan. I'm really looking forward to the discussion. Let's start by setting the table, Jackie. I've tried to give a brief rundown of semiconductors and their importance but it can be difficult to properly understand just how vital these chips are to our everyday lives and the world economy. So could you please share with our audience an elevator pitch for what a semiconductor is? Absolutely. As you noted, Ryan, the term semiconductor is a technical reference to the electrical properties of material inside a computer's processor. Most people use the term semiconductor synonymously to mean a computer processor or a chip. Today's chips have become phenomenally complex and have billions of parts so tiny that they have to be printed with light. The specialized plants that build those chips are called fabs, which is shorthand for fabrication facilities. Advanced fabs are so sophisticated that they can take two to four years to build and cost upwards of 10 to $15 billion. Also, Ryan, as you described in your opening, the urgent problem today is where chips are being made. Intel CEO Pat Gelsinger says, where the oil reserves are defined geopolitics for the last five decades. Where the technology supply chains and semiconductors are will define geopolitics for the next five decades. The world has become too dependent on one region for chip making. And today it's urgent for us to see a rebalancing of advanced chip making into the United States. While Intel does more than just manufacturing chips, let's start there. Why is Intel seen as such an important company in chip manufacturing? And what is your current role within the company, Jackie? I have to say it's a very exciting time to be at Intel. For decades, we at Intel have been the world's leader in chip making. And essentially, every major innovation in processor technology was turned into high-volume commercial production by Intel. 20 years ago, there were 26 companies making chips at the leading edge of technology, but today it's down to just three. Samsung, TSMC, and Intel are the last standing at the leading edge. 
And it's very noteworthy to add that Intel is the only one with the majority of its research and development and intellectual property in the United States. Now, in the last couple of years, Intel has fallen a bit behind, but we are on track to our plan to retake leadership. We announced last year tens of billions of dollars in expansion plans in the U.S., and as an integrated device manufacturer, or it's called IDM, Intel is the only company in the United States that can conduct both leading-edge design and manufacturing in-house. Today, Intel processors power most of the world's PCs and servers, and our strategy is to support the world's exponentially growing need for processing power with chips that support ubiquitous compute, pervasive connectivity, cloud-to-edge infrastructure, artificial intelligence, and sensing. Making all of that magic happen inside of Intel's fabs requires that we coordinate the efforts of thousands of other companies, and they help us make sure that materials, equipment, gases, chemicals, and the technicians to support all of those things arrive at our fabs at the right time and in the right quantity. And that's my role. Nearly everyone had a personal experience with the chip shortage during the COVID-19 pandemic, which taught us really that our just-in-time supply chains are no longer fit for purpose. So what was it like for you, Jackie, during those months, working with your suppliers to manage those shortages? What advice were you offering other supply chain professionals during that time? Great question. As I see it, the number one job of a supply chain organization is to deliver uninterrupted supply, irrespective of the challenge. And during this most recent peak of constraints, it became increasingly apparent how deeply interdependent suppliers and customers are. While I used to think of supply chains as relatively linear in nature, the past few years have shown that they are much more like meshes or webs And if you start to fray some area of the mesh, even if most of the fibers are strong, the whole structure is weakened. And that's why I say it's extremely important to be attentive to all of the elements of your value chain. My advice to the teams at Intel was to start by shifting our mindset into a high possibility mode. We needed to move from asking, can we solve this disruption? Do we have a solution? To How do we best support our customers in this time of shared crisis? It's that possibility thinking that enables us to move quickly to an action-oriented approach and to proceed decisively. Think about it as progress over perfection being key to making headway against novel disruptions we haven't faced before. And if you can do that, you might just surprise yourselves and your customers with what you can accomplish together. To follow on, Jackie, what is your vision of supply chain resiliency? What does it mean to rebalance? I think it's simple. Rebalancing is diversifying to minimize risk, which is one of the fundamental practices of effective supply chain management. All too often in the recent world where we've had heavy dependence on single points of failure, an individual disruption occurs in the center of production for critical input, and then it winds up spreading across the industry all for want of that one element. A couple of examples of this include the Texas blizzard that was two years ago, the monsoons that were experienced in Thailand back in 2011, and the 2021 factory fire in Japan at a chip-making plant that made specialized parts for the auto industry. 
There are many more examples, but I see an increasing trend in this direction. And today, the whole world is not diversified. It's over-dependent on one part of the world for advanced chips. And this creates a risk so significant that the U.S. Department of Defense describes it as a substantive security and economic threat for the United States and many allied nations. So for chips, true supply chain resilience requires that we have many elements. We need the workforce. We need the R&D. And we must have the manufacturing capacity to continue supplying enough advanced chips to meet the increasing needs of the world's users. This is an urgent problem for the United States to address. And addressing that issue was a key reason that members from both parties of Congress passed the Chips and Science Act last year. As you mentioned, Jackie, U.S. policy will also play a critical role. And I don't think we can have a conversation about semiconductors without mentioning what you just mentioned, which is the CHIPS Act, which Congress funded last year. So how is the CHIPS Act going? What are some signs that we should be looking for that CHIPS is succeeding? Yes, Ryan, you're absolutely right about the importance of the CHIPS Act. Recently, I've heard some criticism about the act as uh, being too small to make a difference and suggestions that U.S. workers can't do what it takes to lead in this industry. We at Intel strongly disagree. The CHIPS Act provides the right level of support to reignite investments in the United States. It supports U.S.-based R&D, investments in American worker training, and more fabs in the United States. Can the CHIPS Act alone solve the imbalance problem that we're at today? Certainly not overnight, but it is urgent and it's essential for us to begin making the transition now. There is no time like the present. Your question about what are the signs of success is also important. It's going to be tempting, I think, to peanut butter, if you will, spread across the CHIPS fund over different states and different parts of the industry. But Focus and prioritization are what's crucial for success here. So we'll know that CHIPS is making a difference when a few things happen. First, when we see the administration focusing on getting grants awarded to the most complex, most advanced fabs. That's currently the most crucial problem to fix in terms of improving resilience. And we'll also know that CHIPS is helping with R&D when we see chip makers building stronger partnerships with research universities and attracting more students with advanced degrees into jobs with chip makers in the United States. And just sitting from my seat, I'm looking forward to seeing more suppliers invest in facilities and jobs right alongside the fabs that are in the U.S. as the industry expands here. We're already seeing early signs of interest from key suppliers. And we're working closely with other suppliers to help them understand, you know, just what are the business opportunities involved in co-locating their facilities near ours. And we think those are significant. How is supply chain rebalancing playing out in the Western Hemisphere? What trends are you seeing, Jackie, in terms of investment flows? Um, there have been some announcements by companies who are exploring ways to diversify their supply chains and to reduce their exposure to risks from supplying critical operations out of a single region. I find this very encouraging, and I expect it to continue, thanks in part to the CHIPS Act. Let's dive into some of the key countries in the Western Hemisphere that stand to benefit the most from semiconductor supply chain rebalancing. 
Intel is engaging with several countries right now, but I want to touch on three major cases, Mexico, Costa Rica, and Brazil. Each country has its own unique strengths and weaknesses. How are the different ecosystems developing? What are you doing to accelerate semiconductor manufacturing in each? Well, if you look across the Americas region, Intel has assembly and testing operations in Costa Rica, and we also have a major design center in Mexico. We're working with governments in the region to help explain you know, what does the semiconductor industry look for when they invest in a country to expand their ecosystem? And what are the things that need to be in place in order to help support the ecosystem and its development? Those include such elements as the need for a stable, sustainable energy supply, good transportation infrastructure, a well-trained workforce, the need for effective and streamlined customs operations, as well as incentives that offset the cost differentials between geographies. We've also been working with the semiconductor ecosystem to help provide an information platform so that suppliers and companies can learn more about what the various governments are offering them in terms of incentives to locate in those regions. Additionally, I've been very encouraged by the coordinated government discussions that are happening around building resilient supply chains, which span from the critical minerals discussions that the Mexican, U.S., and Canadian governments are engaging in, to the workforce development discussions the U.S. State Department and Department of Commerce are having with governments around the world and in the Western Hemisphere. So there's a lot going on that I think is positive and will lead to expanded alignment across the region. Jackie, is there a concern that these different countries will see opportunities to advance their semiconductor industries as a zero-sum game? That's an important consideration. And frankly, in the context of this industry and its future, I don't think it's a zero-sum game. Because if you look at the forecasted demand for chips, it's huge. If you just take cars as one empirical example, today, even a regular car has something like 1,200 chips in it. And EV cars are around 3,000 chips. And those numbers are increasing. They're not declining. So there are many more examples on this scale, and they all tell us that the future projections are strong, they're increasing, and those who expand will have increased opportunities to leverage that capacity. One important variable in this whole equation is the workforce, as you mentioned, Jackie. You can't do anything we've been discussing without a strong workforce, which means investing in workforce development, education, and training. What is Intel focusing on in this regard, and how is it playing out in the three countries we've been discussing? First, I'd like to talk about the U.S. workforce. Today, it's clear that the U.S. will need more workers at every level of education to build and operate fabs and to solve complex engineering problems in semiconductor R&D, architecture, and design. Um, to address that, Intel supports a broad range of programs from offering our engineers to go speak even at elementary schools uh, about the excitement of building computers to working directly with community colleges, helping them train technicians, all the way to working with research and universities to identify new manufacturing materials and methods. 
there's a chronic shortage of skilled workers, not only in the United States, but in every country that's looking to build out its part of the semiconductor supply chain and value chain. Any effort to expand the semiconductor manufacturing capability will need to address this talent shortage or choke point across the entire supply chain and not just the United States. The conditions seem right for a surge in semiconductor supply chain resiliency in the hemisphere. We like to say here at CSIS that the current opportunities in the region are yours to lose. Semiconductor facilities often become the locus for hubs of innovation as complementary industries emerge to take advantage of the expertise and industry nearby. How can the United States and the countries we've been discussing promote not only more semiconductor manufacturing, but the spillover effects that will be critical to increasing economic growth? I think yours to lose is a very apt phrase because it conveys how important it is to get this right. You can imagine the CHIPS Act like a three-legged stool that attracts fabs to the U.S., it builds the U.S. chip-making workforce, and it encourages research and development in the United States. So if CHIPS works as intended, you will see spillovers into other sectors and businesses from what economists like to call a virtuous cycle. An advanced chip-making fab is the front end of a complex value chain. And as we just discussed, suppliers may find that they can operate more profitably if their plants are near or close to the advanced chip-making fabs. As the CHIPS Act creates more advanced fabs, we would expect to see suppliers want to expand not just at those sites, but in the Western Hemisphere more broadly. What is your vision for the future? What will this rebalancing story mean, not just for Intel, but for some of the core countries we've been discussing? Do you think the future is bright? And what more will be needed from both the United States and the region to realize the potential of our current shared opportunities? I think the future is very bright for Intel, for the semiconductor industry, for the United States and the Western Hemisphere. After COVID and today during the current business cycle, it's easy to understand that some might be discouraged or worried about the future, but we see the world differently. We see a world that's increasingly connected with new innovation opportunities emerging every day as those advanced devices enable those innovations. Intel, the United States, and the West are poised to emerge into the coming economic growth cycle in a much stronger position, both more resilient and better able to withstand supply chain disruptions. We could not be more excited to see what comes next. Jackie, is there something that we did not cover as we conclude? Is there anything else that you would like to highlight or add? Yes. One of the reasons that I'm passionate about my work at Intel is that I truly believe that value-added manufacturing is the foundation of a strong and vibrant middle class. Today, the rebalancing of semiconductor manufacturing to the Americas has the potential to create significant positive impacts in communities across the Western Hemisphere. And that positive impact that manufacturers like Intel have on people, it doesn't stop with their direct employees, but it extends far into local economies and their supply chains. This resurgence in U.S. value-added industry is going to be a game-changer for our region, and I am thrilled to see that transformative power in action. 
Jackie Sturm, Corporate Vice President for Global Supply Chain Operations with the Intel Corporation. Thank you so much for joining us today on 35 West. We appreciate you taking the time to speak with us. Thank you. For you, thank you for joining. Stay tuned for the next episode of 35 West.